You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our text this afternoon is taken from 1 Corinthians 10, and in order to shed some light on that particular passage of Scripture, let's turn first of all to Exodus chapter 16, the verses 6 to 18, and thereafter Numbers 9, 15 to 23. We begin then with Exodus 16, verse 6 to verse 18. Let us listen to the word of the Lord. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. And we turn to Numbers chapter 9, Numbers 9, 15 to 23. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the clouds settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the clouds stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the clouds stayed only from evening to morning, and when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, 
Whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of the Lord as you find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the verses 1 to 13. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Thus far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, history, any history, be it world history, Canadian history, Asian history, even church history, often draws little more than a yawn or a sigh from people. I can well remember my high school days and how sorry I felt for my teacher as he tried to ignite in us students a fascination and an excitement with history. Well, how he tried. He pulled out all the stops and used all of the various devices in his teaching toolbox. But in the end, and after much effort, he converted only a few. The rest slept on or else their eyes glazed over as they dreamed about other things mostly boys and girls. And that was sad. But you know, in a way, it was more than sad. It was also, believe it or not, dangerous. A Harvard professor once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And how true. 
Ignorance of the past leads people to repeat the mistakes of the past. And mankind does it all the time. But not just mankind out there, also we, mankind in here, can so easily ignore the past and so fall back into an endless series of mistakes and errors and blunders. It's all a reminder that as Christians we need to be not only good students of the Word of God, but also good students of history. The history of God's people, the history of God's church. And beloved, for proof of all of that, let's turn to the next part in our ongoing series on the first letter of Paul to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 10, the verses 1 to 13. And I preached to you on the theme, living in liberty requires learning from history. And we're going to see how the Apostle Paul instructs the Corinthians in, or in how to count Israel's privileges, how to avoid or combat Israel's blunders, and finally how to heed Israel's warnings. Well, beloved, as we turn to the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we need to remind ourselves that we are still in that section of 1 Corinthians that began back in chapter 8. In other words, we are still dealing with the subject of liberty, with meat sacrificed to idols, with the weak as well as with the strong, and with the fact that the strong need to be sensitive to the concerns of the weak. But you know, when you consider yourself to belong to the strong, it is often hard to be sensitive. And it's also hard to remain humble to avoid having your liberty turn into license and to prevent your freedom from becoming excess. In short, the strong tend to walk a thin line and they need to be made aware of this repeatedly. Yes, and that, beloved, is actually what the Apostle Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 10. He is trying to teach the strong. So how does he propose to teach them? Well, he begins by pointing them to the past and to their ancestors. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, that are forefathers. Now that's a rather interesting way of putting it. You, you need to understand, first of all, that the church of Corinth was predominantly a Gentile community, but that within that Gentile community there seems to have been a rather large Jewish contingent. But there's also something else. When a Gentile becomes a Christian, he or she becomes part of a large and ancient family, a family that includes the Jews. For example, do not we consider Abraham to be one of our relatives too, through faith? Is it not so that, as I've mentioned before, we have three fathers? We have a natural earthly father, we have a spiritual father in Abraham, and we have a heavenly father. And so you can see Paul directs his hearers, his readers, to the past. 
to their family, to their roots, to their ancestors. But you might ask, but back in what way? Well, back in such a way as to teach us about four things that all of the Israelites of old experienced. In this connection, notice the repeated use of the word all. All of the people experience this, not just a few of them, not just the spiritual giants among them. No, Paul is saying that all of our ancestors at a given moment of time experienced this. They all went through it. So what do they experience? What do they go through? Well, the first thing may be called divine guidance. It's found in those words, our forefathers were all under the cloud. We read about that a moment ago. By day, they were guided by a pillar of cloud. By night, they were guided by a pillar of fire. They never got lost. They never debated as to when to go, when to stay. The Lord guided them 24-7. All they had to do was look up in the morning and follow the cloud or the pillar. God was always directing them. Why, it was so easy in those days that it tends even to make us jealous. Today, we need to seek divine guidance through prayer, scripture study, reflection, asking perhaps the advice of others around us. It's a whole process, you might say, and sometimes the process can be rather difficult and rather challenging. But not so with our forefathers here. All they have to do is look up and march on. But then if there was divine guidance, beloved, there was also divine deliverance. Paul says they all passed through the sea. And that, of course, is a reference to exactly how they departed from the land of Egypt. You know, they had been there for centuries in bondage. But then God came to set them free. Only Pharaoh was having none of it. But over time and as the result of plague after plague, Pharaoh and his land and his people were battered into submission. And Israel was free to go. But no sooner was Israel gone and Pharaoh had second thoughts and wanted to bring them back. And so there they were on the way to the promised land, but only there were a few problems for the Red Sea blocked their way forward and behind them Pharaoh and his army was marching. And they had nowhere to go. They were utterly hemmed in on every side, but nevertheless God made a way. He made a way through the sea. Miraculously, he rescued his people. Our forefathers experienced divine deliverance. Only it didn't stop there. For to divine guidance and divine deliverance, you should also add divine leadership. Paul writes, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud. And in the sea. Who was Moses? Well, he was God's special mediator and servant. 
Through him God spoke to the people, through him God led the people. When the cloud was above them and when the sea was before them and beside them, Moses led them on. And the people followed him. They identified with him. As believers in Paul's day through baptism identified with Jesus Christ, with his death and his burial and his resurrection, so our forefathers identified themselves with Moses. With him they walked under the cloud and with him they went through the sea. In Exodus 14.31 we read, And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servant. But so, beloved, the Apostle Paul is not quite finished, for there is one more privilege, one more blessing that he wants to point to, and that is, you may call it divine nourishment. As he states, they all ate the same spiritual food, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they all drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. It's not usual language. But I think you get the picture. For 40 years, Israel wandered in the desert. And never once did the people really, really get hungry or go thirsty to the point of death. As we read, God gave them manna from heaven. He gave them quail to eat. He brought them from oasis to oasis. And when there was no oasis, then he had the water come gushing out of the rock. He took care of all of their physical needs. But you notice the Apostle Paul, he puts a bit of a twist to it. He says, these actually were, were at bottom spiritual needs and spiritual means. For he who is really supplying their needs, none other than Christ Jesus himself, Already in those days, Christ was busy with his people, taking care of them, helping them, defending them, rescuing them. His loving care was there in the most difficult and trying of circumstances. He was the spiritual rock that accompanied them. Well, beloved, if you want to talk about privileges and blessings, I would say you have them here in spades. What a most wonderful God and Heavenly Father our forefathers experienced. Divine guidance every day, divine deliverance, divine leadership, divine provision, all of those things overwhelm their lives. And so what would you expect to hear next? Surely you would expect to be told just how thankful and how joyful our forefathers were. They must have been bowled over by all of this love and mercy, this goodness and this grace that was lavished upon them. But if that is our automatic assumption... 
We're wrong. Read verse 5. It's like a bucket of ice-cold water. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Here they received so much, but they gained so little. And you know, the Apostle Paul is even being rather polite here. He says that most of them, with most of them, God was not pleased. When, you know, in reality, only two of them made it into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. And almost every other one of them perished in the desert. Indeed, their bodies and their bones littered the desert from one end to the other. What a disaster. And what a tragedy. And so why did this happen? Paul writes, God was not pleased. Why was God not pleased? Well, for an answer, you can find all the reasons listed in the verses 6 to 10. The first reason for divine displeasure has to do with idolatry. And in that connection, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. That particular quote combines a number of different expressions that you find in Exodus 32. And there we have that sad saga of the golden calf. Not content with the high God of heaven who is enthroned amidst the cherubim and the seraphim, whom no man has seen or can see, they decided to make their God visible, to bring him down, to reduce him, to cut him down to idle signs. The first sin was the sin of idolatry. And to the sin of idolatry, they added the sin of sexual immorality. And there Paul makes another reference to our forefathers and what they did toward the end of their long, long desert sojourn. You would think that after 40 years in the desert, you'd learn a few things. But there they end up worshipping the false gods of the Moabites, and they entered into all kinds of sexual misdeeds. On the plains of Moab, they engaged in an orgy of lust and debauchery. They polluted and they soiled their hands and their hearts. They ignored God's call to holiness and made themselves unfit to enter the promised land. Yes, and they did more, Paul says. They they also put God to the test. They tested his faithfulness and his care. Think of Numbers 21 and that episode with the bronze snake. How the people insulted the Lord. And they questioned his deliverance, his glorious deliverance from Egypt. And and how they spurned his goodness and attacked and criticized his very person. And one more thing, a very closely connected thing, how they grumbled. 
They were constantly murmuring against the Lord under their breath. They made use of every opportunity to castigate him. They had nothing good in the end to say about him. And the result? God sent the destroying angel among them. The same angel who killed all the firstborn in Egypt. The same angel who later on would kill so many in the army of King David. The same angel that later on would destroy utterly the Assyrian host. That angel came and took the lives of thousands of God's people. What a story. What a chronicle of woe. What a switch from privilege after privilege to blunder after blunder. God's generosity greeted with insult. It shakes us up, surely, and it leads us to ask, so what is the Apostle Paul really doing here? Why is he giving the Christians, the believers in Corinth in his time, such a contrasting history lesson? What's his purpose? What's his intention with all of this? Well, if you look closely at our text, it furnishes the answer. Verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And read verse 11. These things happen to them as examples. And were written down as warnings for us. In both verses, the Apostle Paul uses a word that the Niv translates as example. It comes from the Greek word typos, sometimes translated also as type. It's kind of a hard word to get across, but it's still very clear in the end. The Niv tries to clear it up by saying it refers to an example, but actually typos or type really means an awful warning example. It comes from a root word which means to strike a blow with the purpose of leaving an impression. So really the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthians that all of these things that, that God did in the past for his people and that all of the ways in which the people reacted to him are not just interesting stories. They're not just fascinating ancient details or, or kind of exciting incidents from the far, far past. They're not just facts or details to fill your mind. They're not even holy facts. No, they're more than that. They're types. They're warning examples. And indeed, these things happened as types and were written down, he says, for us to learn from. 
And the purpose is to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. They were written down as warnings for us. You know, applying that to the Corinthian believers, Paul is saying that they they really need to take their past history to heart. And because of that history, they need to examine their lives with the utmost care. Among the so-called strong in Corinth, there were those who were filled to the brim with self-confidence. You can hear Paul complain about that earlier. Why do you think that he said back in chapter 1, brothers, think of what you were when you were called? You weren't exactly the biggest or the best cheese in town. Or what about the mocking words of chapter 4? Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings and that without us. Well, what about his reprimand in chapter 5? You're boasting. It's not good. Time and time again, you get the sense that some of the believers in Corinth thought a lot of themselves and a lot of their ability. We know the difference between food sacrificed to idols and plain food. None of uh, of this bothers us. We can eat it without it doing us any harm. We can go to the temple where this food is eaten and, and we can do business and distance ourselves from all of the idolatry that goes on there. We can keep true religion and idolatry separate. And as for those temple prostitutes that are always hanging around, we know how to keep them at arm's length. We're able, you see, to live on the edge of our freedom and not to fall into temptation. Yes, and when you hear those kind of words, then they're not far removed from the kind of words that Christians speak today. I can go to the movie theater. I know how to distinguish fantasy from reality. The sex, the violence, the swearing doesn't really get to me. Or I can go to Fraser Downs in Cloverdale or to the Cascades Casino in Langley and keep my wallet in my pocket and resist the urge to gamble. Or I can go to the local pubs and drinking holes and keep my distance from the drunks and the drug pushers. Well, for all of these believers who boast and who are so convinced of their own invincibility, the Apostle Paul has a warning word, and it is this. So if, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So if you think that you're standing firm, that you can take on the world, be careful 
that you don't fall. It's an echo of Proverbs 11. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. As well as Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And the point of it is, beloved, that no Christian should ever take his Christian liberty to the extreme. Do not see how close you can come to evil and walk away unscathed. Do not think that you can somehow just kind of dabble or sniff around the edges and not trip up and fall in. Do not think that you can take on evil. And all who talk that way are filled with pride and arrogance and are sure to fall. Their bodies too will be scattered in a desert somewhere. But rather the Apostle Paul goes on to say the way to handle evil is to deal with it humbly and dependently. That's what Paul stresses in the last verse in our text. In verse 13, he states, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand under it. Isn't that a wonderful, comforting promise? In this promise, Paul reassures us that temptations, tests, wrong desires happen to everyone. If you're one of those people who insist, I am strong and I am never bothered by wrong desires, then you are a liar. You're deceiving yourself. But the truth of the matter is that every human being is a target And every human being is vulnerable. So be humble and admit your vulnerability. And in addition, confess and acknowledge that there there really is only one person who can help you to handle temptation. Only God the Father stands above temptation and never falls. Only God the Father is faithful in and of Himself. Yes, and He will come to the aid of all of those who turn to Him in faith and help them both to bear temptation and to find a way out of temptation. And indeed, beloved, is that not what our Savior did? As God, He was beyond temptation, but as man, He was tempted. Why, no sooner was He anointed into His threefold office as prophet, priest, and king, and the devil came knocking at the door. And in the desert, He directs one temptation after another at the Christ. And how does He stand firm and triumphs? He does so by constantly turning to the Lord and to the word of the Lord. 
armed with the sword of the Spirit, he slays the serpent. Yes, and what Christ is able to do, he empowers his followers to do as well. We can stand. It's possible, beloved, to persevere to the end. It's even possible to make it through the desert and into the promised land. But it's only possible in Christ. In Christ alone. And therefore we need to learn. Learn from Israel's history. Learn from our forefathers. And if we learn rightly, then Paul says we shall live in the liberty and the freedom of the children of God. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.